Thank you for coming. My pleasure. So, Lassie Gustafsson? That's very well for a North American. Okay. I haven't lived in Sweden for a long time, so I can't even pronounce it correctly myself anymore. But Lassie Gustafsson, yes. Okay. All right. Our guest today, Lasse Gustafsson. Lasse is an international environmentalist, champion nature, conservation, and sustainable development worldwide. With decades of international executive leadership experience from Greenpeace International, WWF Sweden, WWF International, and Oceana, and now leads OceanWise here in Vancouver, an ocean conservation group with global ambitions. Lasse studied international relations, development science, and human ecology at the University of Gothenburg, Sweden, and received his executive education at the IMD Business School in Switzerland. Thank you for coming. It's a great pleasure. Yeah, and no, this is going to be very exciting. You spoke at an event that I helped organize last month for the British Columbia Construction Roundtable, mm-hmm. and it was all about leadership for the next generation. So, and based on a few of the things that were discussed at that event, I know we're going to talk about leadership because I know you obviously have a significant um, repertoire of leadership, which is a topic that uh, a lot of people are interested. So I know we're going to talk about leadership, but I also know we're going to talk about the environment. But what's mm-hmm. you know coming in, coming into the end of year, end of the year now, and 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 everything that's 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 happening in the world, and everything that's happening at your organization. What's what's most exciting for you these days? So it's really interesting. So let me back up a little bit. When I was fourteen years old, I told my mom I'm going to be an environmentalist for the rest of my life, and she started crying and she said, "Who's going to pay your bills?" Because this was in the 1970s, and environmentalism wasn't really a thing. But my son, my youngest son is 32 years younger than me. He told his gran, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And she said, that's a really smart career choice. So environmentalism come a very long way. We were the uncool kids in woolen hats on the uh, outskirts of the schoolyard, the bird watchers, the bug watchers. And we were not the cool kids. Now we are mm-hmm. the cool kids, not kids anymore. But now environmentalists on everybody's agenda. Uh, and there's a lot of things going on. I've, I've been spending the last two times. I've worked on any, any environmental issue, really, anything from nuclear power to tiger conservation. Uh, the last 10 years, I've been focusing on oceans because oceans is the most neglected and maybe the most important uh, biome, so a nature type in the world. It's 70% of the planet. It's fundamentally important for our climate. The ocean absorbs 98% of all the excessive heat that we create through uh, burning fossil energy, which is you know, taking our economy a long way. Uh, Three billion people are depending on the ocean for their livelihoods, etc., etc. So what's going on in the, in the ocean space right now is, is, is very promising. You don't see it because it's not yet on the surface, but there is a very strong undercurrent. And I'll give you an example. The last 18 months, we have had five international agreements in the UN system or in the World Trade Organization that's all about benefiting ocean abundance, ocean health. Uh, Those negotiations take about 20 years, so they don't come around very often. But once they do, and we all know the UN system isn't the most effective system in the world, and neither is the World Trade Organization, and international cooperation is really hard. But once we have those agreements in place, Government will move money accordingly. They will be holding each other accountable. And no, they will not meet the targets on time. That has never happened. But still, there is an undercurrent of ocean-positive, nature-positive intentions from governments. And in the 1970s and 1980s, if we want to talk to the, talk to the private sector, we had to chain ourselves to something. And we did. That's no longer needed at least not in our part of the world, not in North America, not in Europe. There are other places where environmentalism still is a, is a dangerous, uh, dangerous thing to do. But things are moving fast. And they're moving fast in both a negative and positive direction. Because if you, if you, there's no connection yet in the ecosystems between our commitments and, and our intentions, because climate change is still accelerating. And as you know, we're going to have climate chaos, as we've had here. We've had flooding. We had heat blobs, we had forest fires on scales that we've probably never seen before. We lose plants and animals a thousand times faster than natural evolution. 
but it's changing our minds, our intentions. So, so slowly, slowly, we're turning around, realizing that we're all depending on, on healthy ecosystem. Nature is, is our food. Nature is our oxygen. Nature is our building materials, etc., etc. We all live in. It's, you know, some places it's really hard to say, I live in, in nature because you live in a concrete jungle maybe, but you're still living in nature. And more importantly, you're living from nature. There's nothing man-made or human-made that doesn't have its roots in, in nature. So we're totally, we're part of nature whether we like it. We are nature. We are nature, right. exactly. So you're rather optimistic. I am optimistic because, no, sometimes I'm not, mm-hmm. because you know, there's a lot of things happening that we wish they didn't. But if you'd have a longer horizon, I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. If I compare just the, during my lifetime, We've been going from being ridiculed through being heroes in the 80s and the 90s. Now, actually, now we're just normal people who knows a little bit more than the average person about the environment. But you know, this is now a career opportunity. If you're, a, if you're a lawyer, you're an investor, you can become a green lawyer, a green engineer, a green investor. It's, it's part of normal life now, which is a great progress because there's nothing wrong with being a biologist, obviously, but biologists don't sit on all the solutions. So I need other expertise as well. Yeah. So how do you, how do you balance? Because a lot of the work that you do, I understand, is getting funding and advocacy mm-hmm. and, and changing regulations and, and things like that. And it has, like you said, it, it takes a while to, to get up the chain. But once it's kind of locked in, then governments kind of reply. So how do you, how do you, how do you kind of influence and make sure the a lot of people are on board with environmental issues, but how do you make sure it stays top of mind, uh, I guess, with, you know, federal governments, provincial governments, or whoever it may be? Um, because I understand they just put focus and energy and money towards the most important issues of the day that will perhaps get them elected in the next election cycle. So how do you make sure environment stays top of mind and is a number one priority? Brilliant question. So in order to drive deep change, any form of deep change, you need two things in particular. You need, you need really good knowledge. We have more scientists in percentage in our organization than the average uh, environmental group because we are solutions-oriented. We create solutions. So you need to know your stuff. And that's where the environmental movement is building a, a body of knowledge around, and together with academics and others as well, of course, but driven by environmentalism, we've built a strong body of knowledge about how the, how the world's nature works and how it's being harmed and what we can do about it. So the knowledge is there. No, we'll still need to figure small things out, but big picture, we know what we need to do. So the other thing we need to do is we need many people because there's not a corporate leader or a politician, or a faith leader who can ignore the masses. And that actually doesn't matter if you're in a democratic country, an undemocratic country, on local level, global level. The combination of, we know what we're talking about, and there's many of us. We'll drive change on the markets towards market transformation, and we'll drive change in, in government affairs. So deep knowledge, many people is the recipe. Interesting. So how do you... How do you keep how do you keep your 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 base of people and how do you you know how do you how do you how do you make sure the masses again stay stay focused on on your issues and your um, you know agendas that you're continuing to move forward? Yeah, so we used to we used to have to shout. Uh, we used to try to force ourselves onto the agenda. That's no longer the challenge. So my my the organization I'm leading right now, Ocean, was we stand very firmly on two legs. One is Conservation initiatives where we tackle real ocean challenges with deep knowledge and many people. The other is education and youth empowerment. So 50% of what we do is targeting uh, Canadians under 30. We have five different educational programs. One of them is online, so people from all over the world can participate. And this year we've had participants from 90 countries. The other ones are shorter, three months, six months, nine months, part-time mainly online, but also including face-to-face activities where we are teaching what we call ocean literacy. So, so what do you need to know about the ocean? We teach leadership and we teach and practice community service. So everybody who's participating in one of our educational programs also do projects in their own community. 
If they live in Hyderabad, they do a project on Hyderabad. If they live downtown Toronto, that's where they do their project. So connecting to what we call everyday Canadians. Same, of course, in our countries. No? So the whole idea is that we will, we will share our knowledge in a practical way. We're looking for practical solutions, practical solutions that can be scaled uh, so the solutions really matters. And one of the most important things that I said, we don't judge. So a lot of environmentalists, myself included, have been spending a lot of life, on, a lot of time on naming and shaming. They are bad and they are bad and they are even worse. Mm-hmm. I've given up on that tactic because I don't think it works. We're, we're working with a philosophy. We build the coalition of the willing. And I don't waste time, my time or anybody's time, to debate with people anymore. Because, you know, people who want to debate, they can debate. Nothing wrong with that. We're not particularly interested in advocacy. We are doing practical conservation on the ground. So if we say, you know what, in Canada, we need more kelp forests because we lost 50% of our forest. What we do, or try to do, we plant. We plant kelp together with our partners in the indigenous communities who are the, the uh, uh, right, right holders of the waters. Uh, if we want to have an education for environment, we start an environmental education. We're not asking somebody else to do it. So we really, if Nike didn't have the slogan, just do it would be ours. And they actually stole it from the hippies in the 60s. There was, there was a book called Do It, written by, uh, by a hippie called Jerry Rubin. He's gone, but otherwise that would be another good interview for you. So, but just do it. That's, that's, so we're practical. We're not judging, and we try to do things. And most things that we do are not controversial in theory. In theory, they might be, but once it's done, it's done. Yeah. Nobody's going to go out in the ocean and sort of unplant, rip up plant. No, we we want kelp forests, so we plant kelp forests. Yeah, and the, and the name Ocean Wise is is very well known, mm. which I think is is probably strategic, right? You know, when I hear Ocean Wise, I think of Ocean Wise, I think of healthy oceans, I think of sustainable seafood, I think of plastic reduction. Yeah. So if I know that, I know whatever mm-hmm. wherever that came from must be working. But that that must be that must be strategic, right? So it's very interesting. I came to Canada twenty nineteen. And I, because I was asked if I could, if I could turn Oceanwise into a global ocean conservation group, and that was very tempting. And I've only been to Canada maybe three times in my life, one, once in my career. My wife never been to Canada. Canada wasn't on our, our map. I thought Oceanwise was a bit pompous because who's calling themselves wise? Oh, that's, that's not, I'm not that kind of guy. But it's been growing on me because it's not received as pompous. It's received as, yeah, we want to be smart about how to protect and restore the ocean, which is what we do. So it, it, is, a, it is a good name. It is a good brand. And here in Vancouver, it's very well recognized. And I think mainly the seafood recommendations we do has got a great reputation here. We have around 550 partners in, in Canada. We have 7,000 point of sales. Our strongest base is here in BC because this is where we started. This is where we have our deepest roots. So. And BC, of course, is an amazing place to start an environmental group. You know, Greenpeace was started in Kitsilano. Yeah. Sea Shepherd was started in Kitsilano. Mm-hmm. And Oceanwise was started in Stanley Park. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. How, so how, how has that experience been, I guess, coming up on four or five years now, c- coming to Canada, leading Oceanwise? And, um, you know, I guess how, how has that experience been in the context of, or I guess how, as you, as the leader of OceanWise, and, and it's not just you, it's, it's the entire team and everyone mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. Behind, behind the initiative, but you have to be outspoken. You have to be outspoken at a certain time about what you care and um, have knowledge to back up against. And in the society that we live in these days, like if I say something perhaps outspoken on, on this show that is against a lot of perhaps narratives, that can have repercussions for me. But do you have some sort of bubble or protection because you're an organization, a respected organization, that when you when you speak and and share something that is a fact about the environment, and and you can say the government is doing something wrong, for example, we need fifty percent more kelp forest. Do do you have a little bit of protection um, that if you say something controversial, which even though it's not controversial because it's backed up by knowledge, can can you can you feel like you can say it without a lot of repercussions? And perhaps that has been a long time coming. Yeah, so the last 20 years, I've tried to position myself and the organizations I've led as the critical friend of whoever is in charge. So close enough to be listened to, 
but not so close that you actually can't have an independent voice. So we, so when I was, so I was born in Sweden. When I was the CEO of the World Wildlife Fund in Sweden, I said, if there's any other environmentalist between me and the prime minister, one of us is in the wrong place. And that's because it's not because we. I think we need the very radical groups. They put out the goalpost far away over there, and it seems unrealistic at the time. But historically, we've been moving in that direction, partly because of that. But we also need the more pragmatic people like myself who say, "Yeah, environment's important, but you know." People have busy lives. It may not be the most important thing for everybody just because it's the most important thing for me. Uh, and then if you stop accusing people of what they're doing, if you're asking people, you're encouraging people, you inspire people, you help people, are there people who hate environmentalists? Yes. I mean, there are people. one of the most dangerous things you can do, say, in the Amazon is being an environmentalist or a forest protector. They will kill you. But in Canada, no. In Europe, no. It's It's... Of course, there are people who disagree with us. You know, we're up against some really well-resourced forces, like you know, the the uh, the say the oil industry, for instance, or the, some of the in, industry industry fishing companies who are you know owned by an algorithm and insurance companies. They don't do environment; they do money making, which is sometimes in contradiction. Uh, but I don't feel like I'm in an unsafe space, and I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm wearing my ocean wise thingy. And I'm wearing it when I'm go out drinking on a Friday night as well, and nobody seems to be provoked by that here in Vancouver, or, or actually in, in the last couple of years nowhere. No, you probably make some a couple of friends when you're out on on Friday nights wearing that button. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about the conservation on right. Friday night. So, right. so, but yeah, of course, not, a lot of people like Bushong. Oh, absolutely. What now here in Vancouver? If you take, I mean, we're so lucky. Um, to live here and you know you're we're both live close to the mm-hmm. ocean so we can go down and, and see it and a good day for me is when i, I i'm beside the ocean a great yeah. day is when i'm in yeah. it yeah. colder the better type yeah. thing but our i mean if you go and look at the oceans here they are especially the shoreline they are relatively pristine now if i go to to somewhere in central america or other parts of the world Often, you know, once you get off the resort beach and you go next door and you go exploring, you can see piles and piles and piles and piles of plastic. And in that instance, I'm like, wow, this this is a challenge. You know, it's a different challenge for many different reasons based on the country that that I'm in. So I guess I guess the question is, how how do we how do we keep oceans top of mind when we don't always have the visual of of how challenging or how big the, the problem is with the ocean? So I was in a meeting yesterday uh, with a bunch of lawyers and consultants, and there was a, there was a presentation from a conservative think, uh, thought leader on what's going on in the Canadian economy. And I just talked to one of the one of the other guys in the in the in the coffee break and said, I, "I've yet to meet a Canadian man who doesn't fish." And I'm sure there's tons of Canadian men who who don't fish, but here in Vancouver, the oceans is on everybody's mind. You know, it's 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 close. And I think the one thing the Canadians don't understand about Canada is it's 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 huge. And it, you know, I'm European. I didn't understand when I came here. I mean, I've got friends in Toronto. I asked them, "Have you been to Vancouver yet?" Said, you don't know. If you know, when I'm flying back home to Europe, when I get to Montreal or Toronto, I'm halfway there. <laughs> yeah. BC alone is twice the size of Sweden, which is the fourth biggest country in Europe, with half the amount of population. There's, so there's four times as many people per square kilometer in Sweden than, than in, in BC. So, so the vastness of Canada is, is, is something I think we're all struggling with understanding. And that's why it is pristine, because you know, there's almost no people here. So there's 40 million Canadians, but you know, in terms of, we could squeeze the whole European Union into the landmass of Canada. So of course, there's no pressure on the ecosystems here in the same way as in a highly populated place. That doesn't mean Canada don't have environmental challenges. We're one of the main producers of fossil energy, which is driving uh, climate change. We have a resource-based economy, which is you know it's a challenge. It's easy being Switzerland. You know, when when you're you know, it, no, it's easy being environmental friendly if you're Switzerland. When your main business is financial services, if your main business and job creation is in the resource industry, then that's a bigger challenge, and that's where Canada is is right now and that's why Canada is struggling on the environmental side. Yeah, that's a cool perspective. I've always I've always thought it was it was 
interesting, you know, how uh, Vancouver over over the last few years, you know, the strive was, I think this is obviously past now, there was a strive to be the greenest city by, mm. by 2020. So that that's that's come and gone. But I mean, that's interested to hear your perspective. That's kind of like a pat on the back thing. Like if we're looking at, at, at the, the global scale of environmental issue, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't whatever million or 10 million bucks or 150 million bucks, whatever we put into the initiative for, for Vancouver 2020, wouldn't that be better off going to some place in Mexico that needs a proper recycling um, facility so that everything doesn't just go in the ocean? If we're looking at the world as a whole. Now that may be a pretty pie in the sky way to look at things. It's kind of where I go. So I like Canada. I'm here voluntarily. I came here because I wanted to. But I'll give you an example of where Canada sucks. The plastic footprint from the average Canadian is twice the size the plastic footprint of the average European. So we're really bad when it comes to wrapping our food, drinking our coffee, distributing our cigarette butts on the beaches. Uh, and that's just one example. And you need to look at yourself and say, and I think everybody needs to do that, not Canada. Everybody needs to say, how much can I do? And what's the best I can do? And that doesn't, uh, you don't have to ignore helping others, but you keep your own house clean before you start. I don't know what the, the English expression is, but you know take care of your own business because before you start blaming others and <clears throat> there are many solutions that we can create here and then the the impact per individual i don't know exactly where canada is but we're certainly not one of the best countries in the world living within the ecological means of the planet so we have things to do on an individual basis of course you know so uh, but more importantly on the systemic level if you look at the how our taxpayers money is used here in canada for how much we subsidize, subsidize renewable energy versus how much we subsidize oil and gas and coal. I don't know the numbers by heart, but I think it's it, very far. You know, it's almost, We need more markets and less government intervention. If we took out the subsidies to the oil and gas industry in Canada and we took out the, the, the subsidies to renewable energy, there would be a dramatic change in how we produce energy. And that's not maybe the most realistic option, but if you think about it, we say, as Canadians, if I can aspire to be Canadian, we, we're going to fight climate change. And that's why we're producing two and a half times more oil today than we did four years ago. There's a mismatch between what we say, and I'm not blaming any political party. I just think that there's a, there's a big challenge for a country that's so heavily depending on resources to be environmentally friendly. And there's a gap between what we say we want to do and what we're actually doing. So the whole idea of, oh, no, we should go help Mexico. No, we're a bigger problem than Mexico in the big scheme of things. Interesting. Yeah. I, but I think it all goes back to knowledge and, and information. Like, I, don't, I didn't know those facts, and I'm pretty sure the average Canadian doesn't know those facts. But once you're empowered with the knowledge and information, and you know, same thing with all the world issues going on these days, once you know the truth and facts and things like that, you uh, understand better your viewpoint and um, yeah, you still go fill up your, your car with gas, perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, but at least you're more aware of the impact that you're having. So I love, but I love how ocean-wise, you know, a big arm of it is is education yeah. and knowledge and putting that out there. Okay, amazing. And I think, I don't think knowledge is enough. You need something, you need a, a big injection of inspiration as well. Uh, look at other issues, you know, smoking. It wasn't until it wasn't sexy smoking anymore that smoking actually came down. It was not the health argument, I don't think. Uh, I was never a smoker. I wasn't cool enough to figure out how to smoke. But uh, And we saw, I don't know what the cigarette packs looks in Canada, but in Europe they have horrible pictures on, and they say cancer with big letters. That doesn't stop people from smoking. It's when it's not cool anymore. The kids don't start smoking. Oh, once you're hooked on something, you're hooked on something. You can maybe you can get off it, but you want to prevent that from happening. And the same with the, the same with the, our our dependency on on say fossil energy, say overfishing. You know, it's not until we realize. No, yes, we need the knowledge, but you also need to have that. Why would I? I think that's one of the questions people. Are, ah, it doesn't matter what I do. Everybody needs to do everything they can because the, the planet is in a in a bad state and and if we're just waiting to do if we're just waiting for others to do stuff 
we're not going to mix. So how do we keep it sexy? How do we keep environmental issues? Yeah, you're asking an old 62-year-old guy with a bald... <laughs> oh, I'm saying you're... How you're, do you're, we mix you know, at least you got socks on. <laughs> I don't. You look good. Right? I think... I So I have a lot... So I don't want to dump any responsibilities on my kids' generation. I have three kids. They're all great. We screwed up. Our parents screwed up. We need to fix as much as we can. But when I talk to people, and I saw I have Osho, my staff is average age is 32. So there's a lot of young people, and they think very differently. They they are very pragmatic. They they want to get part of my English. They want to get shit done, uh, and that makes me hopeful. And I've been standing with uh, people who participate in some of our educational programs, talking to the Prime Minister of Canada, and he doesn't give a rat's ass about me. One, I can't vote in Canada. I'm not Canadian yet. Two, I'm not young, and I'm not cool. So he talks to my two students who are in their mid-20s because they are actually much more influential. So I'm an environmentalist from Sweden. I've been doing this for 40 years. I should be known by now. Who's the most famous environment? environmentalist from Sweden. Greta Thunberg, she's not even 20. So she's the woman, be, be, she, was, she sat down in front of the Swedish parliament and said, I'm not going to go to school until we take climate change seriously. She created a movement called Fridays for the Future. She's got hundreds of thousands of kids around the world standing up and say, you know what, why should we go to school if the politicians don't care about knowledge anyway? So a lot of hope with the next generation without taking off any responsibility from the current leadership. You know, we need to do everything we can. But I think it's, it's, um, it's cool to be an environmentalist if you're in your 20s. I'd agree. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. great. So you mentioned, you mentioned working with the average age at OceanWise is, mm-hmm. is 32, and you've had a, a good career mm-hmm. of, of senior executive yeah. leadership. So let's talk about leadership. Do you... Do you do you continually find yourself learning more about leadership? Yeah. yeah. I'm taking a course at UBC right now. I'm working one day a week on what's called uh, organizational coaching. Oh, cool. And it's really just because I don't understand the current generation. I don't, the next generation in the workforce think very differently about work than I do. And I had a shot last night because I was working late and, and some of the young people in the office, they had a movie night. So they were watching a David Attenborough documentary about the ocean. And I was working away in my office, you know, and they had down the corridor. And they said, what the hell are you doing? You're working this late. Why are you working this late? And I said, one, I like my job. I went, I'm well paid. And I, what else would I do? Playing golf? I'm not a golfer. But what I do, I like my job. And they said, oh, you're one of those guys who like to work 70 hours a week? I said, not anymore. But I did between 30 and 50. I did work six days a week. And as a result, I'm divorced. Uh, and these kids, the ki- kids, they're not kids, they're young adults, under 30, but they said, we're never going to do that. And I said, I know, you're different. But I'm working 70 hours and the oil industry works eight days a week. So in my world, you need to put the work in because it's important. And I understand you when you say, we're not going to burn out. We're not going to get divorced. We're, we're going to protect our life outside of work. And I respect that. But I don't really understand it. I really don't, but I need to understand it. So I'm taking this course so I'm going to figure out tools that I can talk to them and understand them better and therefore be a better leader, but also bring up leaders with a different kind of approach to balancing life between your your work-related ambitions and other ambitions you have. Well, let me know when you figure it out, right? <laughs> because... <laughs> No, I think it's I, it's tricky, right? Because on 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 and the millennials uh, on on one aspect, it can be a lot of no, no, no. We're not doing this, not doing this, not doing that type thing. But I I think you're an example, and it's taken me a while in my engineering career. I've been doing 17, 17 years, and I'm you know liking it more mm-hmm. every year, which because I really did not enjoy it for the first ten years because I'm like no, 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 I don't want to do this, don't want to do that. But a lot of it's it's got to come and it takes a while and sometimes it's not always clear how to get it to find the purpose and the meaning in the work and if if you're at an entry level job at ocean wise you know that may be what it is for now and it may not be what you're going to do forever but you got to find some element of purpose and meaning in that to get up and, and you know walk to work in the pouring rain and, and put in the time and i think it's different i did this for 15 years without getting paid 
I worked odd jobs. I was a nightclub bouncer. I was a substitute teacher. I worked in a vegetable store to be able to pay my bills as an environmental activist. This wasn't a career for me. It became a career almost by accident. I never had a career. I, never, I didn't even study biology. I was an environmentalist out of pure passion, and I learned stuff on the way. Uh, so that maybe is the difference. It wasn't a career choice. For my son, and I haven't, I mean, I'm not claiming anything of what he says or does, but maybe for him it is a career. It's a combination. Now I want to do something. I want to do good by doing good. You want to make, he, I asked him when he graduated as a marine biologist, you want to come and work for me? I said, no way, I'm going to make money, that. <laughs> and, and he's right. In the not-for-profit world, we're not, we're not making the kind of money as you do in the private sector. And maybe we shouldn't. But, you know, if you're a biologist, you have options today, and it's a career. But as I told my daughter once, and she said, you know, you don't get promotion on the second day in the office. That's not how it happens. You need to, you need to work. You need to prove yourself. You need to, you know, and you need to learn. And, and I, I'm not blaming the young, I'm not an old father saying, oh, they don't understand anything. They understand some things much better than we do. And sometimes maybe not as good as we did. So it's, it's about finding ways to work together. Finding, so leadership is really that. You know? The most important criteria for leaders, you've got followers. If nobody wants to work for you, you're not the leader. You might be the boss, but you're not the leader. So finding ways to inspire and, and guide and hold accountable and making people you know, perform at the top of their capacity. It's, like an, it's a skill set, but it's also an art form. And within, so the, what, the reason I'm going back to uni is because for this generation, I don't have all the skills. I can see I don't have all the skills. I want to build my toolbox and have a few more, more, more skills that I can use and, and helping them to be successful. Because this is a, a, a big challenge out there, mm-hmm. trying to communicate with, with the up-and-coming generation. Again, like they value, they value different things. So, I can, so what, if, what if someone's in a, in a position leading an office here in, in Vancouver? Maybe there's 100 or 150 people in it. And, and you know, they've tried everything. They, 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 they've done Pizza Fridays or, or um, you know, given a presentation on this or that. But still not... And maybe they're in their their sixties or something, but they're still not connecting with with the folks in their early thirties or or late twenties. Like they just these people in that age bracket are just and I've been there, like kind of moping and showing up to work, maybe putting on a face fake face and a fake right. smile, and then talking shit as soon as you you get out the door type thing. But how like how do we how do we connect? No, no matter whether you're the boss of that that group or maybe you're a middle manager, 40s or 50s, like how do you connect with the people and what you've learned, what you've experienced, like in their late 20s, early 30s? So during COVID, when everything changed, no, we did a survey for the staff we had and said, how do you want to work after COVID is over? We don't know when it's over, but we, we're clearly not going to have an environment when everybody coming into office every day. That is gone. And I actually, I've been fighting HR directors all my life because some work is done best at the kitchen table. Not everything, you know, collaboration is better when you are face-to-face in the same room, but analytical work, writing, why would you commute for four five minutes to get into an office and close the door and, and try not to be disturbed by the people around you if you can sit at home at your kitchen table and do it in your pajama? No? So we're not asking people to come. So we asked, so how do you want to work? And there was three people who said, if you, if you ask me to come into the office, I'll resign. And there was three people, myself included, who said, I'm coming in every day. I don't like to work from home, and I want to be in the office. We have offices. And then the rest said, we come in one, two, maybe three days a week. So we optimized. We have about 150 people. We have 32 workstations and three offices for the people who come in every day. One of those people now decided to move to Whistler. So she's not coming in every day anymore. So now we have an empty office. Nobody wants it. Uh, and we're not asking people to come in. They, it's, you can work where you want. And we're trying really hard to measure performance, not presence. So we're not counting butts on seats. We're not going to install software in the computer so they can sit and play with their mouse and pretend that they're working. We don't care. And it's an experiment for us. We, we don't know if this is going to work. But we're thinking of this as we're fighting for talent. We fight Finding the right people to come and work for us is not easy. So we're fighting for talent. What do they want? Freedom. How much freedom can we give them without losing productivity? And how do we know? So we're trying to figure out how do you measure output and impact from somebody so you can ignore how much they work and when they work. We even had a guy who went all the way down to Mexico in his van because he was a surfer boy. 
He wanted to surf. He was young. And we said, let's do it. We'll see how it goes. He came back after a couple of months and said, I have to, I have to resign. I can't deal with all this freedom. I said, you can't resign. We don't accept your resignation. We're going to give you boundaries. So we gave him boundaries, and he stayed for another six months. And now he's in Portugal surfing. So he was clearly a surfer boy, not an environment. He'll come back at one point. But we, we are experimenting with new ways of working. And, and our starting point is let's ha not have any rules except the ones that we are obliged by labor laws and, uh, you know, the kind of, we're following the law. But we said not have any rules until we realize why we need them. So the last two and a half years, yeah, we've introduced rules, but it's like guardrails. They're helping us to do better. It's not rules to say, no, the executive team has decided you have to do it this or that way. No, you can do it any way you like, as long as you get the output and the impact that's in your annual work plan. Will this be successful for everybody? Of course not, but there's no model that is successful for everybody. So we're looking at finding new ways of working, get, get a lot of creativity going with as little, I have to follow the rules as possible. But even, and, even if like, there's a lot of trust involved with that, but if you're, if you're leading the group and, and your leadership team is trying to talk to, to everyone else as well, even, even if you... You say you trust them and you put this freedom out there and, and work as home as much as you want or come to the office as much as you want. That's that's good. But there's still maybe like Susie over in the corner or Johnny or whoever they are, they like maybe that's not what their challenge is. So as a I imagine as a good leader in your leadership team team has to be able to connect with everyone and mm -hmm. understand what yeah. their their needs are. So I am in the office almost every day. And I'm having lunch in the office. I'm bringing in sandwiches like everybody else. I'm sit we have a communal table. I'm sitting around that table like everybody else. I'm trying to shut up as much as I can. If they want to talk to me, they'll ask me questions. But I'm sitting there listening to their discussions about Beyonce was in town and the tickets cost this much. I don't give I don't care about Beyonce. It's not my cup of tea. It's nothing wrong, but you know, it's not that's not me. But I'm sitting there absorbing. Learning, 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 learning. And they tell me, well, would you want to go for a beer? I'll come for a beer and I leave early so they can badmouth me after. No? Uh, but I'm not turning them down. I'm not trying to be, I'm the leader over here. I'm trying to be as close as I can. And of course, that's for the people who are based in Vancouver. For the people in Halifax, they'll never see me except on the screen. And then we have a, once a year, we have a, what we call an all staff meeting. Everybody's coming together. And basically, we do team building for a couple of days and, and a little bit of. Uh, educational stuff but really it's about coming together as a as a group mm -hmm. but you you and they you know you can't sit at the at the lunch table and and it's not like everyone um when you come in and sit down everyone gets quiet and leave not a, no not at all and and my and i have a very uh, i have a very simple rule if my door to the office is open it's actually open so people come in they come in and say you know what what if we did it this way and i'm trying to be as open-minded as I can. Oh, after 40 years, you know some stuff, no? And some of the things that are coming with, we tried it three times and it didn't work. And you don't want to spend your time trying it again. But you need to find a way to wiggle them off that hook and say, you know what, what if we did it this way? So empowerment is a really, really important part of my leadership. I don't think, and so there are different ways of leading an organization. We are not in a culture, we don't want to be in a culture where there's you pointing with, you know, this is where we're going. We have a strategy. It was co-created with all staff plus stakeholders. Uh, we asked people, what, what's, what, what do we need, who do we need to be as Oceanwise? What are we going to do? What's our values? That's all been built. And, and half of the stuff we have now that didn't work for us three years ago. So they haven't been part of it, but it's still co-created. It's not the top-down process. Is something top-down? Of course. No, there's something says, you know, strategic decision taken by the board. You don't have a say. So there are people with, so, so some people have a voice and a vote. Some people have a voice. Some people have a voice and a veto. And that's not the same people for every, every topic in the organization. But, you know, if financial reporting, if the, if, if the CFO is not in line with the financial reporting, it's not going to go anywhere. She needs to own this. So she needs to say, this is good. I'm happy. And it goes to the board. What the biologists say about our financial reporting, we don't care about that. And the same is true. We're not asking our finance department to design marine protected areas. 
but we have we're working really hard and i actually been spending the morning with our leadership team all our directors and the executives because we're presenting the budget to the board next week finessing 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 and how do we make sure that we optimize every not-for-profit has limited resources and we will always have limited resources because we have big dreams and small wallets even the biggest ngos who's got a billion dollar budget have bigger dreams so the whole idea that we're living in scarcities is just true we'll never have enough money so it's always about how do we collaborate between different areas of expertise so we optimize our impact on on our mission and that's a never-ending conversation you will always have to have that conversation we're talking about why did we do it this way why did we do it that way last year we did this year but that didn't work and we do it differently this time and you, you, you can never stop learning mm -hmm. and you, but you have these conversations with all levels of the organization or as low down as they need to go and maybe yeah the people uh, towards the bottom don't get as much input but at least they are aware of what's going on we, so sharing information is maybe the most impossible task i've never worked in an organization where people say yeah internal communication works brilliantly i understand what's going on mm -hmm. it's it doesn't matter how much you communicate it's always somebody who says oh that's too much i don't why do you keep sending me emails all the time why is the ceo on a video on my computer i don't want to and the other way around i never know what's going on and nobody ever tells me anything so information is really hard so we're just trying to do it in through as many channels as we can and hope it you know it's they will work for everybody. But we're a small organization. We're 150 people. So nice. it's, it's, it's not like we're running a big multinational organization where, where relations are abstract. We know people. So what advice would you have to the 32-year-old you know, man or woman that, that works in your organization and that comes in the office that is, you know, maybe they'll be the president and, and CEO that day. Or maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they know that. It's kind of... And maybe I, I I don't know at that, at that age if if you know that if that's just an ego thing but maybe they actually really really maybe maybe they really really care about environmental issues and they would one day be a great president and CEO once they learn their relevant skills and and move up the ladder but what's like what's what's one thing for the ambitious early thirty year old to like what what's one thing that they can put their time and energy towards you know, in addition to the regular routine and task that they do, like what's, what's the best way to put that they can grow their skills so that they can have a great career. So when, when you're about, say you are in your early thirties, you've been working for five, six years. It's, this is the time when you have to make a choice. Do I want to become a specialist? Meaning am I trying to be the best I can possibly be as an engineer, as a biologist, as a finance person, or do I want to be a leader? You can't be both. I used to know so much more about the environment 20 years ago in, term, in technical terms than I do now. So I've been broadening and broadening and broadening. I've been studying economy, HR, patent law, all sorts of stuff. So when you're, if you decide you want to be a leader, you need to broaden your base. Nobody will be a good leader by being a specialist major challenge for organizations who take their best technical expert and turn them into their leader because you can't become the best technical leader at the same time as of course there are exceptions to any rule no but if you're a technical expert and you're really really good that means you've been zooming in you're becoming more narrow and you know more than everybody else about your area of expertise but that also means because everybody's got 24 hours and some are smarter than others but nobody can both be no i should say not it's very unusual that you can be both your leading technical expert and having a broad enough base to be a good leader. So if you decide you want to be a leader, you need to do two things. You need to broaden your base and you need to start building a network of people around you who you can trust. So the EVP for conservation in OceanWise is a PhD in zoology that I've been working with for 20 years. When I came here, it didn't take a year before I asked him to come work for us. Because I know Carlos is in the house. I don't need to worry about the environmental technical expertise because he knows everything, quote unquote. And he'll build teams around people who knows a lot. So if I want to know, know something about the environment, I'll ask Carlos, who knows this? And he will tell me. I have a finance director, new to me, but I trust her 
with everything. Because the last three years we've been building trust. So you need to have people around you. So one who are areas, expertise, have area expertise, but also who will tell you when you're bullshitting. This is not a CEO who's not cheating, cutting corners, making it up on the go. And sometimes you fail and you need somebody to tell you early because, you know, that could be detrimental. If, you, if you're winging it, that's what sometimes you have to do and you, you don't get it right, you need somebody to tell you, that was bad. Don't do that again and tell you why. So building a strong network and building a strong base of skilled skills that you need to be a good leader. Love it. Yeah, that's good. But yeah, that's very clear that, that at a certain point, you do need to make a decision, technical yeah. or, or leadership, and then, and then grind real, real hard into that. So would you, you know, going end of the year coming up and going into to next year, would you say, or what is, you know, what, you know, perhaps for you as a leader of OceanWise, would you say, what would you say your main challenges? Would you say it is, would you would say it is on the environmental side and, and funding um, and getting projects through and initiatives? Or would you say it, it or, or where would the leadership and, and connecting with, with everyone in your organization at, at a deeper level, would you say that would, would be the, the, the biggest opportunity for growth? No, so, so we have two major challenges, and it's very clear to us what they are. One of them, because we're very ambitious, you know, when you introduced me, you said OceanWise is a, a Vancouver-based organization with global ambitions. Ambitions is the key word there. We're not global. We want to become global, which means we need to do two things. We need to be world-class in what the things we do, so we inspire others around. So they really, we want to produce solutions that people steal from us, and they implement them at different scales. You know, ideally, we would get some credit for that, uh, or maybe even participate. But you know, the solution that comes out of OceanWise should go global because they are so good, uh, and we're not there yet. Aspiring to be world-class doesn't mean you're world-class. It's just. It's like in sports or music, you know, so there's so much failure, which you need, you need to be tough enough to fail in order to say, you know, I'm going to be world-class at this. It's a, it's a portion of arrogance, but then you need thick skin, but you also need hard work, no? And you need to have enough talent. Uh, so taking our programs from where they are now to a place where they actually have a global impact, that's our uh, challenge number one. Our challenge number two is, of course, to raise enough money so we can make that happen. So the money-making model is, so we, we are not making as much money yet as we are spending. And we, we have a reserve that we're tapping into, and the board's been giving me two more years to break even. And that's going to be a challenge. And then we're going to grow from there. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, impact and money. Impact and money. And it's, I mean, yeah, I love it because it would be easy if, if the goal was kind of small, right? If, if, you know, we just wanted to clean up Sunset Beach and, and, and that was it. But it, it, it's global. But at, you know, at the same time, it's, it's like the world is abundant. Nature is abundant. Ryan Reynolds' bank account is, is super abundant. So there's lots of money out there. And it's so frustrating that people that are trying to do great things for the world or, or different organizations. Um, that don't have as much money as they want to do the good work that needs to be done. But I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I, I always go optimistic as well, but I'm like, you know, if someone would just tap into the people with the money, uh, and I know this is kind of oversimplifying things, but there just seems to be enough out there if it can get redirected in the right direction. I think that's where it gets back to when you have enough followers and you have enough people that care about the cause then the money will go in that direction. So I've been saying for a long time, money isn't the problem. It's just they are in the wrong pocket. So that's a matchmaking exercise. It's almost like Tinder. I don't know if you've been on Tinder, but it, it really is about find. So here's what we need to do, and here's the money. How do we connect them? It's not sales. It's matchmaking. There is will out there among people who are rich. who have, you know, They wanted, not all of them, but many of them want to do a good thing. We just need to tap into the ones who care about things that we care about. We need to find them. So it's a matchmaking exercise. Cool. So last question, how can we help? What's the, what's the best way to get on board? So as a citizen, you should, you should think about the small things that you can do. You, know, you do a little plastic audit in your kitchen. If you eat fish, make sure it's ocean-wise. 
How do you get, I don't know if you're working from home, you go somewhere, you know, how do you get there? Figure out the smartest way to get to the office. I'm walking and I'm not saying that because I'm bragging. I just, that's what I'm doing. My wife is driving. Uh, and that's, we've been thinking about how do I get to work? I'm perfectly happy walking. My wife's got an uphill, so she's driving. What do you eat? You'll be surprised what the big footprint your food choices have on the planet. So I'm not advocating for any particular diet, but most, most of us would do better eating less red meat, eating more vegetables, and eating maybe fish twice a week, uh, ocean-wise fish. And then, depending on where you live, and BC is not the, the, the most important place to make this choice, but how do you heat and cool your house if you have a choice? Uh, and then the fourth thing is, where do you go on holiday? So we have those, we have those people who are living super green. They, they eat only vegetables. They cycle to work. They buy their clothes secondhand. And then they fly to, to Thailand twice a year and blew it all up in carbon. And I'm not blaming people. For, you know, we're not blaming people for living their lives. But you know what? If you really want to do things, these four things will make a big thing make a big difference. And then the next thing is support the leaders who's trying to do the right things, whether they you know buy their products or vote for them and and make sure that they feel that they have support. Because saving the ocean or saving the environment or fighting climate is not easy. It's it doesn't it's not easy for anybody. So the people who are trying should get the, our support. I, I think that's that. really important. I love that. And if anyone has a connection to Ryan Reynolds or Taylor Swift or whoever has all the billions of dollars. Yeah, you, you know, know how to find <laughs> Exactly. No, I appreciate you so much. And I'm kind of glad that this very important topic is in really good hands. So looking forward to Well, we need you comes. and everybody else to join in. So, so, but thanks for this. This has been a good conversation. Yeah, we, I appreciate we, we try our best. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate no, absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks, yeah. man. Thank you. Well, if you've gotten this far, I trust you enjoyed the show. I appreciate any five-star reviews, likes, shares, or comments on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you know of just one other person who you think would also enjoy this episode, consider sending it directly to them. I appreciate you. See you next time.